Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Thank you for joining today because we have a really interesting topic that we're going to be exploring. This is chapter 19 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. The chapter is titled, God's Creative Action, You Have Free Will. In this chapter, we're exploring how certain conditioning and certain understanding that we might have gained through other traditions about God may be inhibiting us from actually attaining enlightenment in this life. So what I do in this chapter is help you to better understand this supreme being of God and walking you through how to understand this being so that you can either maintain a relationship with God while continuing to walk the path to enlightenment and liberation of the mind, or you can completely set aside your understanding or any belief in God so that you can pursue this path to liberation and enlightenment without a understanding or a belief in God. Either way, you can attain enlightenment. And my goal in today's talk is not to convince you or prove God's existence or deny his existence either. My goal in today's talk is to help you understand that you're able to progress to enlightenment and liberation of the mind, either with a relationship with God or without one. And that's completely fine. I can help you either way. But if you're going to have a relationship with God and you currently have certain understanding of God, that may need to adjust slightly based on the way that your mind needs to understand this supreme being of God in order to liberate the mind and attain enlightenment. And even if you choose to set aside the whole question of God, then if your mind is still retaining certain conditioning and certain things that you've been taught in other venues about God, this could also inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. So today we're going to be exploring this whole topic of God and how you can progress on this path to enlightenment, either with a relationship and understanding of God or without one. Either way, I'll be able to help you progress on this path, but it's important that you start to understand how to look at this through walking the path to enlightenment through the Buddhist teachings. 
And as we go, of course, you have the opportunity to ask any questions that you like. You can do that in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom by typing in in the comment section and our moderator, Max, will ensure your question gets asked and then I'll answer it during the class. And those of you in the Zoom classroom, you can raise your hand electronically to ask any questions or follow-up questions as we go. The way I'm going to progress is I'm going to lead you through some various teachings that are going to help you first to kind of define and understand what I'm talking about related to God. Then we're going to talk about what the Buddha actually taught related to God. We're going to actually explore some of his words from the Pali Canon of where he was talking about God. And then I'm going to share some experiences with you that will help you to understand how to put all of this into practice, either with a relationship with God or without one, so that you can progress on this path to enlightenment. And as we go through our talk, I'm going to accept questions based on what it is that I'm talking about at that time. And then at the end, kind of open up to all questions about anything. But because there's so many different perspectives and so many different impressions about what God is and what God isn't, and people have been taught various things in various venues, it's really important that we kind of keep on this track of progression to understand what it is that I'm sharing with you. So that's why we're going to keep the questions related specifically to what it is that I'm teaching at that particular time. And then at the end, kind of open up to a wider array of questions that might be in your mind or lingering after we go through our entire talk today. So once again, thank you for joining. I'm really pleased that you're here and look forward to sharing this information with you to help you progress on this path to enlightenment. So as we get started here, it's really important that we start with defining what it is that I'm referring to when I say the word God, because there's lots of different interpretations and people have different perspectives on what God is and what God isn't. My goal here in defining what God is, is not to convince you or give kind of an authoritative perspective of what God is, but essentially helping you understand how I'm viewing this being of God so that you can kind of track through what I'm actually explaining and teaching. If your opinions differ from what I'm sharing, that's completely fine. I'm not here to convince you or change what you feel that you understand on this topic. My goal is to provide you how I understand this being and then help you understand how you can use this to your benefit to ultimately liberate the mind and attain enlightenment. So we need to start with a common understanding of what I'm referring to when I say God. And what I say God, what I'm referring to is the creator of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. Oftentimes we refer to this entity as God or Allah, and we assign certain attributes of being all-knowing or all-powerful, which is also referred to as omniscient or omnipotent. So this is what I'm referring to when I say God. And through my experience with this Supreme Being, I will oftentimes use the gender of he because the energy that I get from this Supreme Being is very much 
masculine. So I will tend to use the pronoun he referring to God. So you might hear me say that as we go. But if you consider this supreme being as a he or a she or non-gender, that's completely your choice. But just understand that if you hear me say he, the reason why is because I associate a lot of masculine qualities with this supreme being. So God to me is the creator of the universe, source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And to understand what I mean by a moral authority, we need to understand what is moral conduct or virtuous behavior. This is holding and manifesting high principles of proper conduct. So God, to me, this supreme being, has essentially determined what are these high principles of proper conduct. And with that, this being that we refer to as God is in my view, providing us complete free will. I know this may be different than what some other traditions have taught, but this being, while he is omniscient and omnipotent or all-knowing and all-powerful, he does not control us like robots. If we do something wrong, we don't, in terms of say a cuss word, or if we gave somebody the middle finger, or if we cut somebody off in traffic, he's not striking us with a lightning bolt or trying to control us to not cut that person off in traffic. Or if you go to give somebody the middle finger, for example, he's not inhibiting you from doing that. You've got complete free will in this world to make your own choices about your own conduct and what you choose to do or not to do. So there's no predestined path that has been laid out by this supreme being that you're either on this path or off this path and they're kind of this supreme being is controlling you to stay on that path of either goodness or badness. Right. And likewise, this supreme being isn't standing in judgment of us and looking at our life and judging us as if we are good or bad. And then at death, sending us to either a good place or a bad place. That's not the God that I'm talking about. And I realize that in a lot of places, that's what's been taught. But it's important that you start to understand that that's not the truth. And the more that we go through this talk today, you will understand more and more that that isn't the truth. There isn't this supreme being who's looking at our entire life that's determining if we are a good or bad person. We only get one life and we either go to a good place forever or we go to a bad place forever. That's not true reality. And we know that from things that we've already studied in this program in terms of impermanence, because we know that the only things that are permanent are enlightenment and the natural laws of existence themselves, that everything else is impermanent. So we know that heaven or hell is not a permanent destination because that would be contrary to everything else we know about the three universal truths and the very first one being impermanence. So this free will that we have is free will decisions to do or say or act in any way that we choose. And we're not being controlled 
or manipulated in any way by this supreme being of God in order to create some kind of outcome. And we're not being judged or placed in any particular heaven or hell at the time of our death. That's not what this being actually does. God does not grant enlightenment or nibbana. It's up to us in our own personal choices to learn the teachings of the Buddha, to choose to actually practice those, to include the entire Eightfold Path and all the other teachings, including meditation and everything else. And through those choices that we make, we actually attain enlightenment on our own without any dependency on God. So God isn't granting us Nibbana or providing us this switch that all of a sudden, okay, this person has done enough. I judge them as being you know, worthy and I'm going to now give them Nibbana or enlightenment. That's not what God's doing. It's actually through our own free will choices to learn the teachings, to practice the teachings and train the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. It's through our own wholesome choices that we're learning and practicing these teachings to train the mind and move it closer and closer to this enlightened mental state, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. It's not attached to worshiping this entity. It's not attached to God giving us Nibbana. We can actually do this ourselves. Okay, we're going to be talking about this more as we go. But before we progress, I want to just take this nice and slow and ensure that you guys understand at least the definition that I'm sharing. Again, you may or may not agree with what I'm sharing, and that's fine. But at least you understand where I'm coming from with this entity of God so that the rest of the talk, you will understand what I'm referring to and what we're discussing. So I'd like to kind of pause here and see if there's any questions on how I'm defining God and how I see this supreme being so that we can have a common understanding as we have this discussion and progress in our talk today. Hi, David. So I have a question about this point of free will. It certainly seems like we all have free will to make decisions in the present moment. But at the same time, do we really control what thoughts appear? And then also, do we not sometimes lose control of our speech and actions? And is that not part of the problem of our existence here? I wonder if you can help me sort of reconcile these two things I'm experiencing. Yeah, so I would say that in some respects, we do control our thoughts. And in other cases, I would say we don't. As the mind is untrained, there's not much control over the mind whatsoever. So in the unenlightened state, there's really very little, if any, control over the thoughts and ideas and things that are coming to the mind. It's just kind of like a wild animal out in the forest. But as we train the mind more and more and more, we gain control over the mind in our thoughts. Still, there can be thoughts that come to the surface that we didn't necessarily initiate the thought. It's something that just kind of pops into our mind but we choose whether to act upon that or not, right? So in some respects, yes, we are controlling our thoughts, but in other respects, no, we're not. The other part of your question, can you repeat that, Max? Yeah, it was also that, so when the mind is untrained, 
it certainly seems like we're not in control all the time of our speech and our actions. So how can we reconcile the idea that we do have free will at the same time, not always feel like we're actually in control at all? I see. So we have free will of choices of whether we are going to train this mind or we aren't going to train this mind. Are we going to learn this wisdom? Are we going to prioritize the training of the mind so that we can gain control of these thoughts? So even in a situation where you're lacking control, it's a choice that you've made not to pursue teachings that would help you to train the mind. So if somebody walks around angry or frustrated or irritated, that is their own doing, their own decisions because they could get to a point where they recognize the anger and frustration, annoyance, all these other discontent feelings and say, you know, I've got to do something about this. I've got to improve the condition of the mind. So if somebody's not in control of their speech, for example, and they become hostile and aggressive and angry, that is their free will choice. They've chosen to conduct their life in that way. And they've got to get to a point, if they choose at some point, to recognize that where they are with their conduct is not leading to any place wholesome. And they need to, if they choose, to make a choice to move towards enlightenment or the light. So even in a situation where somebody lacks the mental discipline to control the mind, it is still through their own free will choice that they don't have that control, that they're lacking that control. So free will is you have the ability to make any decisions that you would like in your life where controlling the mind is I've trained the mind so now I can control it and all the aspects of my moral conduct and so forth and so on. So free will versus control of the mind are two separate things. Okay, yeah, I've got it. All right, thank you, David. It appears we have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so let's talk about what Gautama Buddha taught about God, because one of the things that you will hear in a lot of Buddhist communities is people will say that Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God. And people will say Buddhism has no God whatsoever. And this is partially a misunderstanding, but a lot of misunderstanding in some ways, because there's never a time in Gautama Buddha's teachings where he denies the existence of God. In fact, he actually mentions not only God, but he uses the plural of gods, because during his lifetime, there were people who were worshiping many different gods. In the kingdom that he was in, people visited the Brahmin, who are Hindu priests, that were praying on behalf of these people. What these people were taught is that they were kind of commoners, and they were unable to communicate and have a relationship with God. And they were taught that only this 15% of society, these Brahmin priests, were capable of communicating and having a relationship with God. So the other 85% of the community needed to go pay these Brahmin to pray on their behalf. So what the Buddha observed is that these people would go to these Brahmin, they would pay fees, those people would go home, and then the Brahmin are supposed to pray, and then these people are expecting that their life is going to become better as a result of this payment and this 
relationship that the Brahmin have with the gods. And there's many different gods that they're worshiping at that time. Well, when the Buddha saw this, he knew that this isn't helpful and this isn't proper because it doesn't matter how much money you give to the Brahmin and they go off and pray to God. That person, if they're not improving their conduct and their decision making, then their life isn't going to get any better. And also this whole system bred corruption because maybe today there was one price for the commoners to have this connection with God through the Brahmin, but tomorrow it might have become a different price. And the Buddha saw this corruption. So rather than come in and deny the existence of God, because remember, these people have grown up, you know, learning these teachings and worshiping these gods and really believe that this money they're giving to the Brahmin is going to benefit them. And not only them, but their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. You know, this has been passed down for centuries by the time the Buddha actually started teaching. So if he would have came in and started rejecting God or the gods, we know the natural law of gamma, whatever you put out is going to come back to you. So if he stepped down from this palace of being a prince, almost a king, and started going out rejecting people's gods, he would have been rejected also. So he never denied the existence of God. He just helped people to see that this whole system that they had set up wasn't leading to beneficial results. So in some ways, he was kind of like a revolutionary leader in that he was kind of upsetting the apple cart. Because in this region of the world, there were 15% of the society was living off of this money that was coming by way of the commoners. And when the Buddha came in and started teaching, and that kind of upset some people. So he never denied the existence of God. And we'll get to some of his teachings on God in a moment. But he actually used the plural version in some cases because he needed to help people see that the gods that they were worshiping and how to reflect on that in terms of his teachings. And this is the reason why I teach about God, because there is an understanding of God in certain venues. And there are some people who completely reject God in certain venues. And it's important that you have an understanding of this supreme being if you're going to progress on this path. It doesn't mean you're going to be in prayer or worship this supreme being, but at least you have an understanding of this being. And that's what Gautama Buddha did as well, as he helped people understand what they were doing as part of his teachings to liberation. So he never denied the existence of God. And people had these various beliefs during his lifetime. So he had to kind of meet them where they were. Rather than kind of standing on one side and the people are standing on the other side and say, okay, you guys have to come all the way to where I am. The Buddha kind of met them, you know, kind of halfway or even where they were and then kind of slowly led them towards enlightenment and guided them towards enlightenment. So as a good teacher without ego, he's going to meet those people where they are, you know, and help them and guide them towards enlightenment, even with their current understanding of what they were doing. And the Buddha knew, having attained enlightenment, that these things weren't beneficial. But rather than just going in and saying that and kind of disheartening people and rejecting what they've 
been taught for many generations, he actually spent some time to help them understand these gods that they were worshiping. The Buddha's objective during his lifetime wasn't to either prove or disprove God's existence. That's not what he was about. What he was interested in is helping people to understand the teachings that lead to liberation, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And the teachings of enlightenment and this whole path to enlightenment aren't based on belief. It's only based on truth. So if the Buddha had independently verifiable proof that he could prove that God existed and he could give you those teachings and you could walk away and determine that on your own, he would have shared that. Or if he had evidence that could 100% disprove or refute God's existence, he would have shared that teaching so that you could then independently go off and determine this for yourself. But once again, that wasn't his objective and he wasn't trying to reject God. He never did reject God in any of his teachings. His goal was to guide people to liberation and to this enlightened mental state, not based on belief, but based on independently verifiable truths that you could actually go off and determine that they were truth for yourself. And that's why we call the teachings the three universal truths, the four noble truths, and this whole eightfold path you can go through, you can learn it and practice it and see that it's actually working. You can learn meditation, train the mind, you can see for yourself that it is in fact working. You can learn the natural law of gamma, you can learn about generosity, you can learn the four Brahma Viharas, all the other things that we've been sharing in this program, you can learn these things and then you can go off and independently verify for yourself that these things are in fact true because you see the condition of the mind gradually improving. And you can go off and test the teachings that the Buddha shared. You can test them through experience to see whether things that he shared are actually true or not, like impermanence. You can go off and test that and see whether that's actually true or not. So all of his teachings are based around truth and they don't require belief. So what a lot of people have taught in relationship to God is all centered around belief. And belief can be very misleading to the mind because you don't know whether it's true or not. And a lot of people have been misled over the years based on belief and only belief. And that's why the Buddha's teachings are all about truth. And oftentimes people who are on this path to enlightenment, they will refer to them as truth seekers or seekers because they're looking for the truth that you can independently verify. And that's what Gautama Buddha's teachings do is provide you this ability to independently verify his teachings, acquire wisdom, and through that new wisdom, the mind can then function and be liberated from this discontent feelings of painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. As part of focusing people's minds on liberation and enlightenment, they're really based on right view. That's really the foundation of all of these teachings on the path to enlightenment. And what right view teaches us, which is the Four Noble Truths, is it teaches us that 
we are creating our own discontent mind. So if we experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, any of these discontent feelings and more, that is being caused by craving desire attachment where the mind has this longing with a strong eagerness for permanence. It wants things to be permanent. And this is why, for example, that when someone dies, people who are left behind will oftentimes become very sad or even sometimes angry or lonely because the mind is craving permanence. It has this longing with a strong eagerness, expecting this relationship to be permanent. And when the relationship is over, either the relationship ends or someone dies, the mind ends up becoming very discontent i.e. sad or other feelings. And with right view, it's important for anybody who's embarking on this path to first understand the Four Noble Truths. And this is why Gautama Buddha made it his very first discourse. After he attained enlightenment, there were five students who were his initial students. And he made the Four Noble Truths the very first talk to establish right view so that these five students understood that all of the discontent feelings in the mind are essentially being self-created, that we are responsible for those feelings. And through the four statements of the Four Noble Truths, he lays out very clearly how we are causing our own discontent mind and we can also eliminate it through training the mind to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment. And then he kind of introduces the entire solution, which is the Eightfold Path. And this Eightfold Path goes from right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And through learning these teachings, essentially what he's exposing the practitioner to is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. So by learning this eightfold path with things like right view, right intention all the way through, he's exposing to you that your thoughts under right intention, which is the second step, need to come from a place of harmlessness and non-ill will. And then he goes on to write speech and he shares the five factors of well-spoken speech about how we can improve our speech so that we're not causing harm to others. So therefore harm won't come to us. And then he goes to write action and write livelihood and further on in the path, he's essentially laying out this cause and effect, this action and result and helping us to see that the condition of our mind and what we experience in this life is not based on God's creative actions, that we have free will, that everything that we experience, either wholesome or unwholesome in this life, is all based on our own decisions. And that's the real core of what the Buddha was teaching during his lifetime, is that once we accept responsibility for the condition of our mind and the condition of our life, then we are empowered to now take action 
to improve the condition of our mind and the condition of our life. But if a practitioner's mind believes that God is the one who's controlling our life and that God has laid out this path for us and we need to follow what God says, then this is wrong view. This person wouldn't be accepting responsibility for their own decisions in this life. They're essentially relegating themselves of being essentially controlled by this supreme being, which isn't what God does. But if someone believes that in their mind, then they're never going to be in a position where they're accepting responsibility for their own life and their own decisions. So it's very important for a practitioner to understand what Gautama Buddha started his whole foundation of teachings on, which is right view, accepting responsibility for our own thoughts and ideas and emotions and whether we're discontent or peaceful, that's all because of us. And we have the ability through understanding this natural law of gamma which is laid out in the Eightfold Path, we have the ability to learn that and practice that and completely improve the condition of the mind and the condition of our life. That all things in this world are not because of God's creative actions. We have free will. So let me pause here with just kind of this introductory approach of looking at Gautama Buddha's teachings and see if we have any questions. So the Buddha's teachings are not based on belief, they're based on truth that can be independently verified. And he was not out to prove or disprove God's existence. But is the existence of God something that must remain, something that's subject to either belief or non-belief, or is it something that can be independently verified? From my experience, as you walk closer and closer to enlightenment, i.e. getting closer to the light and you've left all of this darkness essentially all these unwholesome decisions from my experience god starts to show up in your life and god starts to make his presence more known and i think the reason why he does that is if he wanted to he could shake the whole earth turn the sky black rain down lightning bolts and force everyone to know hey, I exist, wake up world, here I am. But that's not how this being functions. This being is very caring, very loving, very kind, very compassionate, deep, deep, deep wisdom, profound wisdom. And as we become more enlightened and walk closer to the light, making more wholesome decisions, he starts finding ways to independently show us his presence and show us his existence but he doesn't give us something that we can take and show other people to independently prove that he exists because in some ways he actually prefers that people believe in his existence and has confidence in his existence he's not interested in shaking the world turning the sky black raining down lightning bolts to convince people that he exists but when he sees that people are moving in the direction of enlightenment, he then starts showing up. And in my experience, he showed me many, 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 many miracles that made it so clear that he exists. And then also on this path to enlightenment, 
it's almost like this fatherly advice that's kind of like there in the mind that whenever I was confronted with certain decisions, there were certain times and there still is today where he provides kind of like this wisdom or this guidance. It's still my choice, my free will of what I choose to do in any one given situation. And there are situations where I don't do what he suggests and it doesn't usually turn out as well. <laughs> but if I do do what he suggests and I fully understand what it is that he's sharing, then that turns out well and it deepens my wisdom about this path because his moral authority and his understanding of the Dhamma, so to speak, is far deeper than anybody else on the face of this earth. So as we walk closer and closer to the light, we can actually tap in to this supreme being and the supreme being can more readily guide us if we choose to listen to that and we choose to heave that advice. But it's our free will choice. But if I was in the darkness and I was using drugs and alcohol and, you know, really, you know, mired in craving, desire, attachment and hatred, anger, ill will and delusional thinking and ignorance and unknowing of true reality with lots of self and lots of ego, we're not able to understand it or we don't see it. We don't heave that advice if this being is trying to help us that we typically won't accept this guidance or understand that it's there. But as we walk closer and closer to the light, through my experience, we become more aware of this being's existence. And that was my experience. I can't speak about other people, but that's what happened for me. It's very interesting. Well, thank you, David. We do have a couple more questions, but I think they might be more appropriate to take at the end. Yeah, sure. And just to add on there, Max, I said it previously, but there's never been a time where I can independently give somebody and say, here, this is the proof that God exists. But man, he showed me countless, countless times about his existence. And he needed to do that because early in my life, I did have belief in God had a lot of belief in God. But in the late 20s, my 20s and early 30s, as I started spending more and more time around Thai people, Thai people share with me that there's no such thing as God and God doesn't exist. And that's just because that's kind of what some of them have been taught growing up. So I started getting to the point where, you know, I didn't believe in God and I thought that God didn't exist. And as I progressed in life at different times, he really made himself known. And in the last two and a half, three years, he really has made himself known that, hey, you know, here I am, like I'm here, I exist. And that's how I know he exists. But I don't need all the students that study with me to know that he exists in order to help them attain enlightenment. If people do have an understanding of God or would like an understanding of God or they currently have beliefs in God, I can help them to understand how to have a relationship with God and attain enlightenment. But if somebody doesn't have that or isn't interested in having that, that's okay too. And they can still learn and practice these teachings to attain enlightenment. So my 
perspective is the same as Gautama Buddha's, is that I'm not here at this point to either prove or disprove God's existence. Where I'm coming from is, well, if you're interested in maintaining a relationship, let me teach you how to do that. And if you're not going to have a relationship with God, let's make sure you remove any conditioning that you've experienced through your life so that you can completely detach from this and still reach to enlightenment without having a relationship with God. So I can approach this and help people through either side, either understanding and having a relationship or not. Right, so a key takeaway here really is that whether or not you believe or understand or have a relationship with God need not hinder your progress on this path. Uh, even if you uh, are completely disbelieving in God, you can still practice these teachings mm-hmm. and attain enlightenment. Is that correct? That's correct. That's 100% correct. You wouldn't have to have a belief in God. And from my experience, not everyone who's attained enlightenment or is close to enlightenment has had the experiences of knowing of God's existence. So I've met people who are either really close to enlightenment or have attained enlightenment who they have had similar experiences in terms of various miracles and showing up of this supreme being in their life. And they know with 100% certainty that God exists. But then I've also met people who are either close to enlightenment or attain enlightenment who they are like, no, you know, God isn't something that's part of my life. And it's not something that I believe in. So that's how I know that you can attain enlightenment either way. And I also know that people that I help as students, you know, a good majority of the students that I teach have no interest in God whatsoever. And I can guide them and help them progress to enlightenment in that way. But then there's also people who I teach that do have a past of respecting God and interested in believing in God and maintaining a relationship with God. So for those people, it's important even more so than the other group to truly understand this supreme being of God, because there's a lot of things that we're taught growing up, or at least I was, that if we believe those things about God, it's going to hinder us from attaining enlightenment. And even if you've grown up kind of with beliefs in God, and now you've kind of stepped away from it and decided you're no longer going to believe or have a relationship with God, even if you do that, if you're still retaining some of this conditioning from your earlier days in your life, that can hinder you from attaining enlightenment too. So this is an important topic for both audiences. And that's why I really am interested to impress upon everybody that I'm not interested in either proving or disproving God's existence. I'm really just interested in helping you attain enlightenment. And this whole topic of God needs to be discussed in order to ensure that you don't have conditioning that's going to hinder you from attaining enlightenment. Perhaps I can ask a follow-up here then. So when we do feel like we receive some kind of guidance, let's say, from something external, we might call it God. But uh, is it possible that this kind of wisdom might come from somewhere else, like maybe another spiritual being, divine being, maybe 
uh, a being who is positing as something loving but actually has ulterior motives or has their own kind of delusion or, or, or is it possibly that's just coming from some corner of our own mind that something that's been buried there is actually coming to the surface and it feels like it's coming from outside of us but you know this is actually something that's been conditioned at some point uh, so can it come from any of those other areas and if so how can we tell the difference can we tell the difference yeah it can come from all three of those things so it can be your own thoughts your own intuition your own omniscience it can be heavenly beings that are in the heavenly realm that are communicating with you as you become more and more awake you can get guidance from them or it can be god himself and for me i know the difference based on many different criteria when it's god it's very profound it's very deep it's lots of wisdom and lots of care and lots of patience and there's a feeling that comes over the body and comes into the mind i can actually feel it through my body it's really strong it's really profound when it's a divine being or heavenly being it's very light it's not very profound it's not very deep wisdom it's just a very kind of like little hint or a little inclination just kind of like a suggestion and it's not very strong it's very light in the body the way that the sensation in the body feels and when it's my own thoughts there is no sensation in the body whatsoever it's just my own thoughts so there's kind of like this increasing of sensation in the body from none whatsoever, which is my own thoughts, to a very light kind of like hinting, which is divine beings, heavenly beings. And then there's like this profoundness, this fatherly advice, this deep wisdom. And there's this deep feeling in the body, this sensation that comes over the entire body and sometimes the entire head when it's God. And he doesn't always come with that level of strength. But initially, before I really knew what this was, he had to do that many, many times and show me many different miracles for me to understand that it was actually him. And then since then, he can be not as strong because I'm aware of his presence and I acknowledge his presence. And then he's not forcing me to do what it is that he's suggesting always have free will and i don't always do exactly what he says when he says to do it and what he's recommending so it's not like a demanding forceful kind of approach it's a hey this would be really good for you you might want to consider this this would be something good for you and then it's very potent very powerful very deep wisdom it's interesting and when it is this more profound potent form of wisdom do you think it has a certain character like a certain kind of personality maybe even a way with words that sort of makes it more powerful a kind of poetry to it or is it just more pragmatic yeah it's very non-attached right it's deep wisdom and there's no attachment whatsoever whether i i do it or i'm, I'm not it's not a poetry it's just here this is something for you to look at and I just know when it's God and, you know, and, and the, yeah, I just know, I, I just know it's God. I was going to tell you something. One, sometimes I will speak to myself and I'm not crazy, but sometimes I will say something to myself 
And God will usually confirm. He never tells me a negative thing. So like if I, uh, one time, two or three years ago, I was trying to eliminate my craving for sexual contact. And I was really working on this really close. It was really difficult. It was really hard. And I was at my wife's yoga studio and I looked out the glass doors and there's all these beautiful women. And I, and I just like spoke. I was just like, why did you make them so beautiful? I was like, man, you, you definitely, you know, made them beautiful for a reason. And then like, boom, like I could feel his energy, like agreeing, like, yeah, there you go. Like, it was almost like I was joking with him and he was joking back with me. Like, yeah, exactly. Like I made them beautiful for a reason and you're having trouble dealing with this and you've got to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment that you're having for sexual contact. But it was, it was a very playful thing. And that was the only time that I ever experienced this playfulness with God, where every other time it was always this deep, profound wisdom that came through. And it was up to me of whether or not to consider that guidance and advice or not. It's always been helpful. It's always been motivating, encouraging, never judgmental, never degrading, never punishing, never forceful, always just very unattached and just here, this is for you. And when I look at it, it's just always very deep, profound wisdom. And as this wisdom comes through, it's still up to me to determine if it's truth or not. And this is one of the ways that I know this wisdom is there and this entity is there is not only because of the miracles, but when this wisdom comes in, it's not something that the Buddha taught in the Pali Canon, but it's some wisdom from somewhere else. And I never believe what is being shared with me, even though I have you know, 99.9% certainty that this is God's guidance and God's advice, I still approach it as I'm not going to believe this. I need to practice this and see if it's actually true and if it actually works or not. And that's what I do. And that's how I determine that this guidance that I've received over many years is the truth and is real wisdom from this supreme being because whenever I do heave that advice and I practice it, it works. Thank you, David. It's very interesting. It's um appears mm-hmm. we have no more questions at the moment. Okay. So let's go to what Gautama Buddha shared or one of the things that he shared in his teachings about God. This is a part of the Pali Canon in English where he's talking to his monks and he's had this conversation with some other monks, people that aren't part of his group. Because remember, during the Buddha's lifetime, there was many different groups that were claiming that they had attained enlightenment or their teacher had attained enlightenment and they knew the truth. And the Buddha had his group and the Buddha knew that he had attained enlightenment because he knew his mind and these other people were doing things that weren't part of the path to enlightenment. So he was had approached these other aesthetics, these other monks, and these Brahmin priests. And I'm going to read this through, and then I'm going to walk you through what he's actually teaching here. And this is where essentially 
he helps you understand that you have complete free will and he puts the responsibility back to each individual practitioner to ensure that they know that it's up to them to learn and practice. This is titled, All is Caused by God's Creative Action. It starts, Then bhikkhus, bhikkhus are his students, I approach those aesthetics in Brahmin who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, In such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, utter divisive speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view? Those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no desire to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard themselves, and even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. So let's go through this. Then bhikkhus, students, I approach those aesthetics in Brahman. So remember, he's got his group of monks, aesthetics that are learning and practicing, getting closer and closer to enlightenment, but there's still these Brahmin priests and there's still these different groups of aesthetics, which we would probably call monks, that were practicing all these various teachings that weren't the Buddhist teachings. And everybody was kind of claiming that they had the truth. And even though today we know that Gautama Buddha was the Buddha 2,500 years later, during his lifetime, the only people that knew were people that were around him and people that were actually studying and learning his teachings and improving the condition of their mind. These other aesthetics and these other Brahmin were still holding on, thinking that they had the truth and what they were doing was correct. And some people felt that the Buddha wasn't teaching the proper teachings, right? So these other aesthetics and Brahmin were doing all kinds of different things. So the Buddha would sometimes come together with these other people and talk to them and have discussions with them. And that's what he's doing here. So he approaches these aesthetics and Brahmin who hold such a doctrine in view that whatever a person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, here this is discontentedness. He's talking about painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So he's saying a person who experiences discontentedness all that discontentedness is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, 
Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? Right? He's asking them, is it true that you really believe God is the one who causes all these discontent feelings in the mind? When I ask them this, they affirm it. So they said, yeah, that's true. God's the one who causes all these painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And when they affirmed it, then the Buddha said to them, right? Because he's kind of trying to help them see the truth. Is it such a case? It is due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life. Here he's going to go through essentially the first four precepts that you might destroy life, right? Like you might kill other beings, that you take what is not given because it's God, right? That forces you to steal and you indulge in sexual activity because of God, like God forces you to do that. Speak falsehoods, utter divisive speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing. This is craving, right? That you might be full of craving, desire, attachment. Have a mind of ill will. This is hatred, anger, and ill will, right? And then he says, in hold wrong view. So he goes through the first four precepts, and then he talks about craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. And he says, is it also because of God that you do all these things and you have all these things? And if that's what you believe, what he gets to in this fourth paragraph is those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth that it's all because of God that all these things are happening, that I'm killing, that I'm stealing, that I'm having sexual misconduct, that I'm lying, that I'm speaking harshly, that I have longing, that I have ill will, that I hold wrong view. What the Buddha is saying is if you believe that God's creative activity is the truth and it's him that's causing all of this, then you have no desire to do what should be done, meaning to improve your conduct, to make wholesome decisions. You are not in a position that you're accepting responsibility for all these things in your life and all these decisions that you're making you're not in a position to do what should be done and avoid doing what should not be done. They do not make an effort in this respect. So they just sit back and they just think that all of that's going on in their life is based on God. And therefore, they're not able to progress to enlightenment. So this last paragraph, he essentially says, since they do not apprehend as true, right? So since they don't understand what is true and valid, that what they understand about God is not true and valid. He's not causing all of this to happen. It's your own personal decisions that are causing that. Since they don't apprehend what is true, that they are in fact the ones who are choosing to do that, invalid anything that should be done or anything that should not be done they are muddle-minded so when you're unenlightened your mind is very muddled right it's very confused it's very burdened and stressed 
So that's what he's talking about here is that if somebody is thinking that God is the one who does all of this stuff, they're not practicing these good, wholesome teachings, then their mind's going to be muddled. And they're not guarding themselves. They're not protecting themselves by doing what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And then the last part, he says, even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them because what an aesthetic is, is someone who's a seeker of the truth. Someone who's on this path to enlightenment has given up all their worldly possessions and entered homelessness wearing these robes, essentially rags, living off the generosity of household practitioners and just accepting whatever donations of food and water and clothing and shelter and medical care that is provided to them. So what he's saying here is that you know, if you're just going to believe that God's the one who's doing all this stuff, then you're not even seeking the truth. You're not even an aesthetic. You're not even somebody who's on this path to enlightenment because you're not willing to do what should be done and you're not willing to avoid what shouldn't be done. So in this little part of his teachings, he's showing us that, hey, it's our free will. We're the ones who are choosing to destroy life, to steal, to indulge in sexual activity, to speak falsehoods, to have divisive or harsh speech, to have idle chatter, to maintain this longing or craving, this ill will and hold wrong view, this ignorance. It's all us. And the Buddha is saying that's essentially not going to lead to enlightenment is what he's sharing here. So let me see if you guys have any questions on this. I'd like perhaps just to check my understanding of this then, David. So it mm -hmm. seems like if we were to say, ah, oh, everything's due to God, everything is God's creative activity, we're kind of planting the cause for complacency. Like there's, there's no cause for us to direct our will, our intention, speech and actions towards anything wholesome. And so it, it seems like even that belief that there is no free will, let's say, is potentially quite a dangerous belief. It doesn't actually say whether free will is or isn't true, but it says that if you think and act as though it, it isn't there, then that's going to be a cause for complacency. Yeah, if God is the cause of all of this stuff, then we're essentially robots, and we have no choice whatsoever. We're just robots. And if somebody truly holds that doctrine in view which is what the Buddha confirmed with some of these aesthetics and Brahmin from other places, when they confirmed it, he was like, yeah, it's going to promote complacency, like you said, but why would you ever choose to do anything good or choose not to do anything unwholesome if you thought that everything that was going on in your life is all because of God, right? There's no free will in that perspective, in that view, in that doctrine, there's no free will. Then you just sit back and just whatever happens, happens. It's all God. And that essentially, to me, renders you powerless. And I think that that's like completely humiliating, completely degrading, and completely a lack of control in this life. You have no life. You're just a robot. Whereas if you understand what the Buddha is saying here is like, no, 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 you have free will. Like you have the complete ability to improve your life 
and improve the condition of the mind. And that's very uplifting and empowering to you. But also, if you are complacent, then what the Buddha is teaching is basically, hey, you got to do the work, right? You've got to do some work here. And if somebody wants to be complacent and they fall back on this essential truth that everything is based on God's creative activity, then they can become very complacent and be like, well, why should I do anything? Because it's all because of God. So essentially, they think that it's all God's fault. Everything in the world that's going wrong is because of God, right? And there's people today that have that perspective. And because of that, they're rendering themselves powerless. And it's only when you see this with wisdom that this supreme being is not controlling us. Because if he was, anytime you ever use his name in vain, you'd get struck with a lightning bolt, right? <laughs> or he'd sweep your feet out from under you and drop you on your butt, right? This is how you know that there's no punishment and rewards from God because anytime you've ever done something bad, did he try to stop you, right? Or when you did something good, did he give you a reward? No, right? So this is how you can test this for yourself and you can see, yeah, I've got complete free will here. Everything that I do, either wholesome or unwholesome, it's all from me. It's all my decisions. I think the, the Buddha here might have really been tailoring this to the people he was talking to and the problems they had, because it seems like there's maybe a, another side to this, that if we think that we are 100% in control of everything we experience every moment and that anything doesn't go our way, you know, we start blaming ourselves and start clinging to things. Do you think that there's a, a middle way here that we might end up clinging too much to our volitional actions? I mean, there's always the potential to cling on to anything a lot. But one of the things, going back to something you said earlier, is the way Gautama Buddha taught is... You know, people didn't know during his lifetime that he was necessarily a Buddha. It was only the people that were studying with him. So he didn't just come out and say, we have free will. Everybody has free will. Because if he said that, you have to just take him on belief, right? There's just belief. Like, you have free will. Done. Like, he could have very easily said that, right? But that's not how a Buddha is going to teach because a Buddha has to teach wisdom that you can independently confirm on your own. So that's why when the Buddha teaches here, he doesn't just say, you have free will. What he says is, okay, this second paragraph. When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I said to them, right? This is him kind of delivering teachings that you can go off and independently confirm on your own. In such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, utter divisive speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view, right? So he's essentially provoking them to reflect on what it is that he's saying as a way of kind of like helping them awaken so rather than just saying, you guys believe that God's the one who's causing all discontentedness? No, 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 no. You have free will. Well, it's their word against his word. 
how do you determine what the truth is? So the way that Buddha spoke is he gave some kind of teaching that could be independently verified. So that's why he said this. He says, well, is it God's creative activity that you destroy life? Is that God that makes you destroy life? Is it God that makes you take what is not given, that you're stealing because of God and he forces you to do that? Is it because of God that you have sex? Because aesthetics and Brahmin, they're not supposed to have sex. So here he says, indulge in sexual activity. He doesn't just say sexual misconduct. So he goes through this and he says, hey, is God the one like speaking falsehoods? Do you lie because of God? Like God's the one who's forcing you to lie. So he's giving the aesthetics and Brahmin that he's talking to something that they can look at and everybody who's in that conversation can look at it and determine whether it's true or not. So he's not just giving commandments and saying, you know, you have free will and just kind of listing things out in terms of belief that you have to believe him. He's sharing things in a way that you can go off and independently test this for yourself. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So going to the next part, let's talk about what Gautama Buddha did not teach, right? So we talked a little bit about what Gautama Buddha did teach. Let's talk about what he didn't teach, because this is important as it relates to what you've learned in other venues about God. So depending on what you've learned in other venues, you may need to kind of remove some of that conditioning. And here, this is a good time to explore these teachings of Gautama Buddha's undeclared teachings. Because he declared a lot of things. He declared a lot of teachings. But he gives these kind of like nine things or so that he says, these are my undeclared teachings. The world is eternal. The world is not eternal. So essentially the world's going to last forever or the world's going to end at some point. He didn't declare whether either one of those are true or not. He didn't declare whether the world is finite or infinite. Finite is like bound by certain set rules or, you know, unlimited rules or capacity, right? He didn't teach that the soul is the same thing as the body or the soul is one thing and the body is another. In fact, he didn't even teach about a soul because the concept of a soul conflicts with his teachings on non-self. So, if you understand non-self in that there is no permanent self, this concept of a soul that goes from place to place to place, the concept of a soul is typically taught as permanent. So you've got to let go of the idea that there is this permanent soul because the Buddha never taught that there is a soul or there isn't a soul. He never taught this because it conflicts with his teachings on non-self. So it's an undeclared teaching. And then he also left this as an undeclared teaching as well, that after death, the Tathagata exists. A Tathagata, he referred to himself as the Tathagata. He didn't even really refer to himself as a Buddha, right? There's only one place that I've seen, one or two places where he might have used Buddha, but I've also seen some other translations that he said, awake, 
rather than a Buddha, he most often referred to himself as the Tathagata, which is essentially one who's not coming and one who's not going. Essentially one who's transcended the human experience. So after death, after his death, he's not declaring that he exists once he dies. He's not declaring that after death, he does not exist. This is key because a lot of people in the Buddhist community will tell you that if you attain enlightenment and die, then you no longer exist, that you've extinguished your existence. But the Buddha never taught that because here he's referring to himself as the Tathagata, but you can really insert in here enlightened being because what he's saying is after death, an enlightened being exists. Like he didn't teach that. And he didn't teach that after death, an enlightened being doesn't exist. After death, an enlightened being both exists and does not exist. After death, an enlightened being neither exists nor does not exist. This is Gautama Buddha's way of just covering all the different aspects of this topic that he's talking about. So he never taught what happens once you attain enlightenment and die. He never taught this. And I have various thoughts about why he perhaps didn't teach that, but it doesn't really matter too much. So we don't know, or at least not that we're sharing, about what happens after death once you attain enlightenment. And the beauty is, is that if you attain enlightenment during this lifetime, the mind will be so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, it won't matter what happens after death because you're already experiencing such a peaceful existence now in this life, having attained enlightenment, that if there is anything after death, it's either as good as you're experiencing now or it's better, right? So it doesn't really matter what's after death. And by the time you attain enlightenment, you've eliminated the fear of death. So you really don't care what is next after death. And you've got to train the mind to get to that point. Whereas if you've trained or you've been taught through other traditions that you only get one life and when you die, you either go to heaven or hell or you're going to have this relationship with God when you die. This is conditioning that we're going to get to in a moment that needs to be eliminated from the mind because you can't have that longing to exist after this life. If you're in this life and you're progressing toward enlightenment and you still want to exist after this, then you're going to not attain enlightenment in this life. And therefore, there's going to be rebirth because you still have craving, desire, attachment. You have to get to the point where you don't care what's next. It doesn't matter because you're just trying to eliminate all longing with a strong eagerness and what may or may not happen after this doesn't matter. And that's where you've got to get to with the mind. Any questions on these teachings that Gautama Buddha didn't declare? So is he essentially saying here, David, like, don't worry about this stuff. Right? Just focus on what works. Focus on liberating the mind, eliminating attachment. These things, whether you find them out or not, by the by, like, just focus on liberating the mind. Right. If you understood the answers to these questions, 
it wouldn't help you attain enlightenment. It has no bearing on the training of your mind to come into the present moment, to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, the self and the ego, to understand this eightfold path, improve your wisdom, your moral conduct, your mental discipline. Knowing the answer to any of these questions doesn't actually improve your ability to attain enlightenment. So the Buddha is just saying, I'm leaving these as all undeclared. And in fact, there's the case to be made that if you did know some of these answers, that it could actually hinder you. So the Buddha never taught that there is something after you attain enlightenment and die. But let's just say if there was, and he actually taught what that was, what is after enlightenment in this life and you die. If he taught that and he shared it with everybody, people would start craving it right? People would start having desire and attachment for it, and it would hinder them from attaining enlightenment. So whether the Buddha actually knew what comes next or not, I don't know because I wasn't there to ask him, or at least I'm not there in this life to ask him, but he left it as undeclared for a reason. And one of the reasons why I feel like he did is because if there is something after this life, once one attains enlightenment, people could crave it, which means they're not going to attain enlightenment if they craved it. So it's better to just leave it as an undeclared teaching and say, you know what, just don't worry about these things because they don't lead to enlightenment. And one of the things that you said, Max, in our class about this topic six months ago, which I find interesting, is you said you found it interesting that Gautama Buddha didn't include in his undeclared teaching that God doesn't exist right? He didn't mention anything about God in his undeclared teachings. But these undeclared teachings are somewhat in contrast to what we might have learned growing up in any other tradition related to God. So oftentimes we are taught in Christian teachings or Muslim teachings or other teachings that we're going to die and as long as we believe and worship certain entities that we will have this eternal life right? And the Buddha saying, no, I didn't teach that. So all these teachings of Jesus and Prophet Muhammad came after the Buddha. So he wasn't aware of them. But during his lifetime, since he basically came before any of those teachers, he never declared whether life in this world is eternal or not eternal. And he never declared these other things as well. So you've got to get to the point where you just don't even care about the answer to these and you just know that they're not beneficial for the mind. I'm curious, David, why he's talking about a soul here, seeing as this idea of a permanent soul conflicts with his teaching on non-self. Is it that there were people at the time who did believe the soul is the same as the body and that the soul is one thing and the body is another thing? And was he merely trying to be inclusive of these people or do you think there was some other reason um it could be what you're saying it could be that you know this is complete speculation right it could be that there is such thing as something similar to a soul but it conflicts with this non-self teaching that needs to be understood and realized in the mind to attain enlightenment so he's kind of like taking that one off the table and he's saying hey i'm not going to teach about this so it's hard to say. I mean, we shouldn't really speculate. There's lots of ways we could speculate on this stuff, but it doesn't matter. So if we just put all this stuff to the side and just forget about it and just continue focusing on what we know leads to liberation, which is 
the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, you know, the three poisons, the ten fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, the four Brahma Viharas, you know, right on down the list, all the other things that we're teaching in this program. If we just stay focused on that, that's going to take you a good while to learn and practice that it's kind of nice to kind of set these things to the side and be like, ah, I don't have to be concerned about these at all. Right, it's tempting to kind of get caught up in all this curiosity and just want to know the answers to things. And actually, it's like you might never figure it out if you don't uh, just uh, focus on liberating the mind and doing those practices that you just mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, David. It appears we have no more questions at this time. Okay, so now that we have all that as a background, Let's go to this, which is what I've been kind of building up to, is to share with you through my experience of what you need to kind of set the mind on in terms of how you progress on this path and kind of undoing potential conditioning that's been shared with you throughout your life if you've been exposed to anything about God as you've aged in this life. As I've mentioned before, an understanding of God is not required to attain enlightenment. But if you would like to maintain an understanding or gain an understanding of God, it won't hinder you either. In order to have a relationship with God or understand God, or even if you're not going to have a relationship with God or understand God, it's important that you focus on these points that I'm going to share with you here. And through learning and practicing in this way, you can either progress with a relationship or without one with God. And the first one is you need to understand and practice right view, which is the Four Noble Truths, accepting responsibility for all the discontentedness in the mind, realizing that you and your craving, desire, attachment is what's causing all discontentedness in the mind, and because you're causing it, you can eliminate it. And there's this whole path, the Eightfold Path, that has been shared that when you learn and practice that, you can eliminate discontentedness 100% in your life. This is right view in a nutshell. You have to have that fully established in the mind and be practicing it at all times, that whenever discontentedness arises in the mind, either painful, pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant, you understand that's fully because of your own craving, desire, attachment. And then you need to work towards resolving that. The second one is you need to understand the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, that essentially all the decisions that you make are going to have some result. And they have your entire life, this life, and previous lives, every single decision that you've made has led to some result. And the more that you understand the natural law of gamma and that you are responsible for all the results in your life, then you will come into these teachings and closer to enlightenment more and more and more, that you understand that God is not controlling you. You have free will, and that's essentially what the natural law of gamma is doing, is cause and effect, action and result, the results of your decisions. You also need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment to be with God in heaven. So if you've been taught that the ultimate goal of this life 
is to worship God or other prophets that you may have learned their teachings. And the goal is to do a lot of good things in this life through worship that then when you die, your ultimate goal is to be with God in heaven. You've got to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment to be with God. You've got to get to the point where you don't know what's next after this life. Once you attain enlightenment and die, and you don't care. It doesn't matter. You don't have a longing and strong eagerness to be with God in heaven at the end of this life. Because if you do, you're going to be reborn and you won't attain enlightenment, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, because you're still going to have this discontentedness because they're still longing with a strong eagerness in the mind. You also need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment to obtain things from God through prayer. So if you do pray and you've been taught to pray in the past, you shouldn't be in prayer asking for things. Give me a new job. Give me a new boyfriend, girlfriend, a new car, more wealth, more money, a new house. Oftentimes what we're taught in certain venues is we're taught to treat God like a genie in a bottle. And God isn't a genie in a bottle. There's no way that you can pray to God and ask for things and he's going to do it for you. This isn't the truth. We've been taught various things in the past and those things aren't true. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people no longer have a belief in God, because we've been taught that if we pray for things, God will actually fulfill them for us. And then when we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray, and we don't get what we are asking for, even though we've been taught that if we pray, we will get these things, then a lot of times people feel that God doesn't exist because you've been taught that if you pray, you will get these things and then you don't get them. And people say, ah, God must not exist. But that's not because God doesn't exist. It's actually because people are misunderstanding God and they're treating him like a genie in a bottle And because of that, you're still having craving, desire, attachment, and therefore the mind still has this longing with a strong eagerness for acquiring a new car, more money, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a new house, a new job, your health or the health of your friends or family, praying for some miracle that they'll instantly get healthy. And then when that doesn't happen, people get angry at God. But what it is, is there, it's a misunderstanding of what God does. God doesn't answer prayers like that. It's not a punishment and reward system. And God's not this genie in a bottle. If you are going to continue to pray or you would like to start praying, I suggest that you just give thanks and you just acknowledge this being. You acknowledge that they exist. You let them know that you believe and that you appreciate them being in your life and that you're open to their guidance and his suggestions. Because if you do that, then God knows that you appreciate him, that you believe in him, and that you're open to his suggestions in your life. And that's essentially what prayer needs to be. If you're asking for a bunch of things, then you still have craving, desire, attachment, and you're still going to have discontentedness when you don't get those things. And you're not going to get those things through prayer. 
I mean, we can test this right now. All the things that I'm sharing with you here, you can independently go off and practice and determine it for yourself, right? I can practice this right now. I can say, God, give me $10 million so that I can feed all of Thailand. It hasn't shown up, right? So we can test that, yes, God is not a genie in a bottle, right? So we know the truth that we can test it. We can independently prove this for ourselves. So if you would like to pray, just give thanks, acknowledge that you believe and acknowledge their presence and that you're open to his suggestions. And if you would like to do that, you can, but you don't have to because it's not required, right? You can attain enlightenment on your own. The other thing is that you need to eliminate any fear of God. A lot of times we've been taught growing up to fear God. And we've been taught that God gives these punishments and rewards. And because of this, people teach to fear God and his wrath, right? If you have fear, like we talked about last week, you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment. So you need to eliminate any fear that you have related to this supreme being of God. And then you need to essentially eliminate all craving, desire, attachment to God whatsoever and realize that you are here on this earth, in this life right now by yourself. Even you've got friends and family around you, you are here by yourself. God's not controlling you. You have free will. You're not a robot and you just have to eliminate any kind of longing or strong eagerness to be with God in heaven or to have God answer your prayers or this fear of God, you need to learn how to have a relationship with people in your life, your partners, your children, your friends, coworkers. You need to learn how to practice non-attachment in those relationships, but you also need to know how to practice non-attachment in this relationship with God if you're going to maintain this relationship with God that you don't have expectations and obligations for God. Going back to chapter 14, where we talked about true love, you've got to have just a genuine interest for God to be well and to be peaceful. And you don't have any expectations, any obligations that you're trying to place on God to fulfill for your life, right? So you've got to move the mind in that direction where you're practicing right view. You have a deep understanding of the natural law of gamma. You don't have this longing and strong eagerness to be in heaven. You're not constantly asking God for things in prayer like a genie in a bottle, but perhaps giving thanks, acknowledging your belief, asking and suggesting that you are open to guidance, that you eliminate any fear that you have of God and that you just eliminate all craving, desire, attachment whatsoever. Because if there's craving, desire, attachment in any relationship, there's going to be discontentedness. If you and your life partner argue, get angry at each other, are sad with each other, whatever, you guys have craving, desire, attachment in your relationship. You haven't done anything wrong. 
You're not a bad person. It's just that there's craving desire attachment there. And that's why you guys argue, you get frustrated with each other, you get irritated, you get annoyed because you still have craving desire attachment in your relationship with your life partner, with your children, with your coworkers, with your parents, anybody that you still have discontentedness with or towards, it's because you have craving desire attachment. So if you have craving desire attachment towards this supreme being of God, then you're going to have discontentedness in this relationship and it's going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment. So you have to eliminate that. And when you do that with people in your life and you understand how to do that, it will be easier for you to do that with this supreme being if you choose to maintain a relationship with him. So I'd like to pause here and kind of open questions, not only for everything that I've been teaching to this point, but any questions whatsoever that you have on this topic of God. I'd like to ask your thoughts, David, on how the world was created. Okay, so let's talk about that. So let's talk about what is the world, right? So when we talk about what is the world, what we're talking about is, to me, we're talking about you know, this sun that's somewhere far, far away, shining on this planet with all this water and human beings and animals and plant life. And that sun gives energy and then things grow and there's evaporation of water and it rains and there's this complex weather system. There's this complex human body that you know, we eat food, we breathe air, we urinate, we defecate, we have all these fluids, we have all these complex organs in the system in the body. We rely on these plants and this air that we breathe and this water on the planet. There's all these complex systems of ecosystems and various beings that rely on one another. And not only this planet, but there's planets far, far beyond here as well. The two kind of competing theories is that there's either these two rocks that came together and there was this big bang and created all of this, or the other competing theory is that God created all of this. Well, this complex system of the world in this universe that we're talking about with all this intelligence that needed to be delivered in order to create this world do we think that two unintelligible rocks hit together, created an explosion, and that's what created all these complex ecosystems and all this complex bodies of animals and plant life and human life and all of these things? I would say that it was not a big bang of two unintelligible rocks hitting together. I don't think two rocks have the intelligence to create what we are looking at as the world. To me, it was God who created all of this. And I don't have independent proof that I can show you other than to walk outside and go take a walk in the woods and look at how things operate. Look at how the sun shines on the leaves. There's evaporation, there's rain, there's weather systems, there's growth, there's sun, there's animals and insects and humans and how we grow our food and all this complexity that we sometimes get lost in in day-to-day -day life. But if you look at the intricacy of how this world is put together with such deep, profound wisdom, 
to me, it can't be two unintelligible rocks hitting together and exploding to create all of this. It's got to be from God, this supreme being who has this deep, profound wisdom to be able to create all this. With that said, it doesn't really matter, truly, who created the world. Gautama Buddha gave a creation story, which is different than what I just shared. But what he added is he said the beginning of the world is undiscoverable. And he was talking about the cycle of rebirth. He said the cycle of rebirth is undiscoverable of when we actually started it. So I would add to that, that how this world was created, whether it was God or something else, it really doesn't matter because all of that is in the past. What matters is right now you have this human existence and your mind is discontent and you've got to solve that problem. And that's really all that really truly matters. But since there's oftentimes a curiosity about how did this world start, I would share that it was this supreme being of God that created the world. One argument that's often made against the existence of God, David, is that how can he be, on one hand, all-powerful, and on the other hand, also be all-loving? Because if there's suffering in the world and he's all-powerful, then why does he not use that power to alleviate the suffering? So is it a case that he's only all-powerful but not all-loving? Or is he all-loving but not all-powerful? Can he truly be all-powerful and all-loving? The answer to that is yes, he can be both all-powerful and all-loving. The challenge comes in is that when people say he's either all-powerful but not all-caring or all-caring and not all-powerful is that they're expecting God to function in the way that they think he should function. So they have certain expectations or obligations that they think how God should function. So a common thing that people will say on this topic is, you know, if this all-powerful, all-loving being exists, how could he allow like a three-year-old kid to have cancer and die, right? Like that's just suffering that no kid should really endure. And they themselves become very discontent when they see a three-year-old child with cancer and die, right? Well, what they're essentially asking for is that God should essentially, you know, snap, if he had fingers, snap his fingers and instantly solve all the problems in the world. Well, if he did this and he instantly snapped his fingers, if he had fingers and solved all the problems in the world, then that means nobody has the wisdom of how to actually attain enlightenment and how to live a good life. So all of us billions and billions of people in the world go around making all these unwholesome decisions that are creating all these unwholesome results. And now God has to snap his fingers and change everything with his power. Well, as soon as he does that, one second later, people are right back into problems again because they never learned the wisdom of what the good wholesome decisions are that they should need to make in order to produce wholesome results. So now he just solved all the problems, but one second later, people are right back into the problems again. So now he has to snap his fingers again and solve all the problems again. So he's essentially going to be controlling everybody. 
So we don't have free will at that point because he's now controlling everybody and controlling everything on the earth. Well, people might complain that he's not all powerful and he's not all loving and we would like to see him control all of these things and take away all these bad things. Well, but then if he started controlling everybody, then people would complain that he was controlling everybody. So he would essentially be like this helicopter parent who's kind of hovering over everybody. And then as soon as somebody starts to get into some trouble, you know, he'd have to zap them with something to try to solve the problem. But that person would never learn the wisdom themselves to have free will and freely functioning in their own wisdom. So as a parent, someone might say that I have complete power over my son, that I have complete power over him at eight years old, or even when he was like one year old or two year old or three year old, that I have complete power. And someone would say, okay, you have all caring. You're completely caring because in loving because you're his father. But at no time do I feel like I should control his life because if I do, it's not giving him free will. It's not giving him free choice. It's not allowing him to gain wisdom to make his own decisions in life. And that wouldn't be a life that he would want to live. That wouldn't be a life that he would be interested in living if dad was constantly controlling him. So you can have love, but not be attached to the outcome of what other people do and not feel the need to come in and control them with your power. So if someone says that he's either all powerful but not all caring, or he's either all caring and not all powerful, that's because they're not understanding true love, that you can actually have lots of love with no interest to force or control people to do something. And they're also not understanding non-attachment of craving, desire, attachment, that God is not attached to the outcome of what we do or we don't do. To me, an all-powerful, all-caring being, all-loving being would say, okay, you do whatever you feel is best in your life. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to have an interest in seeing you be well and seeing you be peaceful, but I'm going to let you make all those decisions on your own. And here's some teachings. Here's some wisdom. Here's some guidance. And if you choose to take that, then that's up to you. To me, that's all caring, all loving. The power part, God has the power to eliminate and have everything conform exactly the way he would want, but he doesn't want things to be a certain way because that's craving, desire, attachment. And he's a deep practitioner of the Dhamma teachings. He has deep wisdom. He's the moral authority of understanding all these natural laws of existence. So he's not going to force his way in the world for all of these beings to do things his way. And if somebody's suffering because of that, and they see a child that's three years old that has cancer, and that person is suffering, that's their suffering. The answer isn't that God needs to come in and fix that illness in the three-year-old child. The answer is that person has to fix their mind and they have to understand that the true problem isn't that God isn't intervening. 
the true problem is, is that person wants God to intervene. That person isn't recognizing impermanence that the physical body is going to have sickness, aging, and death. That's impermanence. That person who wants God to come and intervene and cure that three-year-old child of cancer, that's because their mind is not awakened to these teachings and they're experiencing discontentedness because they're craving permanence. They feel that everybody should be healthy all the time. So the problem isn't God. The problem is that person's mind is not awakened to the three universal truths, the four noble truths and everything else. So this God can be all loving and caring and at the same time be all powerful and choose to not exert that power because out of love for all beings, he's not interested in exerting his power because that would be an action of non-love. If I went in and tried to control my son to do all these things that I want him to do, even though I have the power to do that, to me, that would be not loving him because now I'm trying to control him. So God can be all loving and all powerful, but just choose not to exert that power because he does love us all so much. And what if you were to not give everything to your son that you wanted to, but what if you were to give your son everything he wanted? Would that be a a good strategy as a parent. Exactly. So in this prayer that a lot of us were taught growing up is that we ask God for all these things, but yet he never gives us what we want. Right. As a parent, if every time my son asked for things and I just gave it to him and gave it to him and gave it to him, his craving is just going to go berserk. It's just going to be never ending. And I'm not actually solving the real problem. The real problem is, is that he has craving and he needs to extinguish that or else he's going to keep being discontent. So this being of God, this supreme being, I know he exists. I know he's all powerful. I know he's all loving. But what we've been taught growing up is a lot of times really far off base. And because what we've been taught, we're discovering that that's not true. And therefore, people think that God doesn't exist, right? We've been taught that if we just pray for things, God will provide it. Well, we do that for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and we never get what we want from God. So therefore, some people turn away and say God doesn't exist. Or we see all this suffering in the world and we think, well, if this God is so powerful, why is all this suffering here? So either he is not all powerful or not all loving or he just doesn't exist. And it's fine that we don't have many people that believe in God, and that's fine, but a lot of people have turned away from God because what they've been taught isn't true, so therefore their assumption is that God must not exist, rather than what these people taught me wasn't true. These people didn't teach me the truth, and I discovered that it's not the truth, but that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It just means what I was taught wasn't true. And that's a very important key distinction to understand. Thank you, David. I think now might be a good time to go to some slightly broader questions. Okay. So we have a question from Martino. He asks, hi, David. How can we know that the five realms really exist? Is this rather based on belief than on the truth? 
I don't suggest that you ever believe anything in these teachings whatsoever because belief is never going to liberate the mind. In fact, it's going to keep the mind in the unenlightened state. The five realms of existence, for me, for a long time, I just set that to the side. I knew that that's what Gautama Buddha taught, but I just set it to the side. And that's what I suggest people do throughout their beginning and as they progress in this practice. Because what beings you were in the past or whether you will be reborn in one of these realms doesn't really matter at this particular moment. What really matters is you learning and practicing these teachings and you seeing that through practicing these teachings and training the mind, the mind becomes more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That you can prove now through learning and practicing the teachings. As you do that, and as the mind becomes more awake and more enlightened, you may be somebody who observes your past lives. And if you observe your past lives in these various realms, then you will have independent proof that you are able to discover on your own that these five realms indeed exist. And that's what happened with me is that as I learned to practice these teachings, not really knowing the cycle of rebirth and all the different teachings, I started experiencing past lives and having residual memories of those. And that's where I was able to confirm for myself that these realms actually do indeed exist. So I never believed that these realms exist. I never believed in the cycle of rebirth. I just set it to the side and I never even studied about it. I never even looked at it. But then when I started having all these experiences of observing past lives and I dug into the Buddha's teachings, that's where he explained exactly what my experiences were. So not everybody that gets to enlightenment is going to observe past lives, but some people do. And if you do, then you'll have independent proof that these various realms exist and the cycle of rebirth exists. But it really doesn't matter if you ever see those or not, because you can still attain enlightenment without that. You can just learn and practice the teachings and see the condition of the mind gradually improve to the point where you eliminate all discontentedness and you don't actually ever have to observe your past lives in order to get to enlightenment. But the reason why we do know these five realms is because Gautama Buddha experienced them in his last life and he looked back and he could see. And then there's also people today in Buddhist communities that you can talk to and they can help you understand their experiences that they've had. You can also look online because nowadays there's people that are starting to put stories online about their experiences with past lives. There's a four-year-old child who's probably about six or eight now in Australia that at the age of four was able to recall excruciating details of Princess Diana when he was her in a previous life. And he was able to describe meetings that she was in, clothing that she was wearing, and people that were attending that meeting, as well as the location and what things were in those locations. You know, like private meetings of like four or five people. And a four-year-old child in Australia should not have known this because Princess Diana's life was like over 20 years ago, I would like to say. So there's stories like that. And there's tons of those kinds of things out there. 
And again, you still shouldn't believe in the cycle of rebirth or these five realms, but that can be insight to help you see that, yeah, there are people in this world that have insight into these five realms in the cycle of rebirth. You still shouldn't believe it, but at least you can kind of see that, yeah, there is this understanding in the world. I've even spoken with Christians who work in emergency hospitals and they've seen enough evidence in their life of people dying that they could see people having observations of their past lives. And even though they were taught through Christian teachings that they only have one life and you either go to heaven or hell, they have shared with me like, hey, I know that that's not true because my experiences in this life have been completely different. You know, what we have written down, I'll just go a little bit further, Martino and Max, is what we have written down in the Bible, we don't necessarily know that it's 100% truth because Jesus himself only taught for one to three years and he didn't write the Bible. It was people after him that wrote the Bible. And there's been tons of impermanence since Jesus's life 2,000 years ago. We do know that Jesus said, that I will come again, right? He said, I will come again. This is rebirth, right? So while what we read in some parts of the Bible say that you only get one life and you go to heaven or hell based on judgment, Jesus himself did say, I will come again. So there's these conflicting aspects of the Bible. So we don't know that it's 100% accurate and we would assume that it's not 100% accurate because of impermanence. Like we don't even have to assume that. We should know that. So this whole cycle of rebirth and it being very difficult for most people who were brought up in Christian or Muslim teachings to understand because we've been taught throughout the generations that we only have one life. When you look at the teachings of the Buddha, he explains it very clearly the cycle of rebirth in the five realms. But you can even look at Jesus's teachings as well and see where Jesus was talking about he will come again, which is the cycle of rebirth. So while we've been taught by various preachers and ministers and pastors that we only have one life, we get judged, we go to heaven or hell, we can pretty much see through the Buddhist teachings, through Jesus's teachings, through other people's experiences in this world and potentially your own experiences at some point in this life that this isn't true that you only have one life and you either go to heaven or hell it's not true but just set that aside for now don't believe it but just set it aside and really focus on the path to enlightenment and liberation of the mind so that you can see the truth and all of those teachings as the condition of the mind improves more and more and more. We have a question from Michael. What are aliens? Are they devas? I wouldn't consider them devas. A deva is in the formless realm and aliens, from what we understand, have physical form. So I would look at them as what we would consider a human being. They're just a different type of human being. They're from a different planet, a different makeup. They have form, so we know that they're in the form realm. They're certainly not an animal. They actually seem, from the stories that I've heard, much more intelligent than us. So I would consider them even a higher human being than we are. That's really interesting. Thanks for asking that, Michael. So 
in the sense, David, that they too have the ability to cultivate their consciousness, it would seem, in a way that animals don't, we do. So in that way, they're kind of analogous to humans, whatever we are, this realm that we're in. Yeah, I would think so. And I think that, you know, every single species evolves, right? Lizards evolve, turtles evolve, snakes. There's always an evolution of the species. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week on Sunday is this animal to human existence and evolution of our consciousness. If we look at human beings versus the large volume of information that people have shared about aliens, it appears to me that aliens are much more evolved than we are. I mean, just them being able to travel here, you know, if we take what we're learning on face value, is them being able to travel here, I mean, that's just a huge accomplishment right there. And some of the other things that we hear about what they do when they're here, they've got to be enormously more evolved than we are. We're really behind the eight ball. But of course, our ego wants us to think that we're the only ones in the entire world, the entire universe, and we're the best, and we're the most arrogant, and we're the most prideful. But the more that we evolve our species and people get closer and closer to enlightenment, just think about if we had 50% of our society enlightened, you know, even 50%, let alone 90% or 100%, where there was no more anger and hostility and aggression and sadness and frustration and boredom and loneliness and all these discontentedness in the world. And people had this loving kindness and this compassion and this joy for success of others and this equanimity, right? And this non-judgment of others. If all of us functioned that way, instead of dealing with all these fears and all this bickering and all this heartache and all this uh, fighting, if we just focused on our resources to improve the condition of the world, this world would be phenomenal because instead of building up militaries and fighting each other and bombing each other and destroying each other, and there's a large group of people who are starving in the world, there's a large group of people who don't have clothing or shelter or education. If all of us work together as an entire people in this enlightened mental state, as an entire humanity enlightened, we could evolve as well, where we're not so far behind the eight ball on the evolution of our species, but we spend so much time with fear and sadness and anger and frustration and bickering and hostility and aggression and loneliness and boredom and all these other discontent feelings that we don't even have time to focus on benefiting humankind and humanity because we're too busy fighting each other in the world. So if all that went away, we would have a whole lot of time to create a whole lot of goodness in the world. In a society, David, where a large portion of people have attained full enlightenment, would that society not start to diminish in numbers quite quickly? It would because those beings wouldn't be reborn. So what we see now is we see that the animal realm has shrunk down and the human realm has really exploded. And now this is the time where Gautama Buddha predicted that a new Buddha would come into the world and share the true Dhamma teachings that would spread throughout the entire world. And the idea is, is that if all these beings, all these humans started to attain enlightenment, then the human population would diminish and essentially be non-existent at some point because we know that we're impermanent 
everything here, humankind, even though the Buddha said the world is not eternal and it's not not eternal or, you know, it's not finite and it's not infinite, we do know that human beings are impermanent. You know, we're not going to be on this planet permanently in the way that the Buddha essentially comes to explaining that, although I haven't seen it, but we can surmise it, is that human beings aren't permanent and therefore human existence will be eliminated at some point through the way that we think is through everybody attaining enlightenment and there's no longer rebirth in the world. We have a question from an anonymous user. I was wondering when Buddha got enlightenment, where is the Buddha now? In heaven? The Buddha didn't explain what happens next, so he left it as an undeclared teaching. He's definitely not in heaven because a being in heaven is still in existence. They're still in the cycle of rebirth, and that's an undesirable rebirth. You wouldn't be interested in continuing to exist. It's only now in the human existence that we can actually cultivate the consciousness and attain enlightenment. You can also attain enlightenment from the heavenly world, but that realm, oftentimes beings are very complacent because they only experience pleasant feelings. So the Buddha himself was a human being who attained enlightenment. And then when he died, he left it undeclared of what happened next with him. So therefore, once you attain enlightenment and die, you don't know what's next. And you need to get to a point where you're comfortable with that and you don't need to know what's next. I have a question. Do you think, David, that there is such a thing in the world as evil? And if so, how does it come about? Yes. So just like there's this supreme being of God, there's also this dark entity that Jesus Christ referred to as Satan or the devil. And the Buddha referred to it as Mara. And that darkness is there. And that darkness is trying to influence for things to be dark. And essentially, the way that I look at it is what we're doing right now, not you and I in this group, but what the world is essentially headed towards is hell on earth. And I talk about this, just briefly mention it, I think, in the preface of the book at the very beginning, that the world has become a darker and darker place. It's become a more and more evil place. It's become more and more hostile, more aggressive, more angry. And we're essentially at a low point in humankind and humanity right now. But this dark entity is only as powerful as people allow it to be. Because just like God isn't controlling us, this dark entity isn't controlling us either. It's just attempting to influence us. It's still our free will that chooses to either walk towards the darkness or walk towards the light. Which direction we walk is completely up to us. But there's this dark entity that's trying to encourage and motivate people to walk in that direction. And they're doing a pretty good job at it right now. And then there's this light or this entity of God, this supreme being who's interested in encouraging and motivating us to walk in that direction. But which direction we walk is completely up to us based on our own free will. And the more you walk towards the light, you will see it for yourself. And you know that because you've been in the darkness. And that's one of the reasons why these teachings are independently verifiable, because you know what it feels like to be in the darkness, because you've experienced that. 
and as you walk closer and closer to the light and your life becomes easier and easier, more peaceful, more calm, serene and content with joy, you will feel that and experience it for yourself. And this is why I said earlier that God starts showing up in your life because you're now more open to this entity, this supreme being of God. Whereas if you walk towards the darkness, you're going to be more open to those influences of the dark world. Okay, thank you, David. It appears we have no more questions at the moment. Okay, so I'll just kind of end with this. Whether you decide that you're going to pursue these teachings without a relationship with God, or you decide to pursue these teachings and liberation of the mind with a relationship with God, you've got to come back to what we discussed in chapter 13. And in that chapter, we talk about the Brahma Viharas. And the very first Brahma Vihara is loving kindness for all beings. And loving kindness is this active goodwill without judgment towards all beings. And this is the remedy that the Buddha gives for hatred, anger, and ill will. For some of us, depending how we grew up, depending on what we were exposed to, depending on what things we encountered in our life, some people have hatred, anger, and ill will towards God, right? And I can understand why people have that, especially some of the things that I've heard about people in positions of authority, even people in religious positions who have taken advantage of children or even adults and abuse them either mentally, physically, or sexually, and people associating these actions with God because these people who inflicted this abuse on them are so-called members of a community that are supposed to represent God. So oftentimes when these things happen and when we have various experiences of abuse or we've been taught certain things, and we realize those things aren't true, one of the things that happens is oftentimes people get angered, hatred, or ill will towards God. And I understand why that is. And what I would like to encourage you is whether you choose to have a relationship with God or not, is to come back to loving kindness for all beings. This is all beings. This is all human beings, all animals, all the other realms, including God himself. It doesn't mean that you need to run off and have a relationship with God and have prayer and all these other things. As I mentioned, you can pursue this path without a relationship with God. But in order to attain enlightenment, you need to at least get to a point where you have active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. And God is one of those beings that you need to have active goodwill or this loving kindness towards. Because if you walk around with loving kindness and compassion for all other beings, but you still are harboring this hate, anger, and ill will towards God, you're not going to be able to attain enlightenment and experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. In fact, when I discussed this topic six months ago, as part of this group learning program, there were some students that wrote me privately after class and said, you know, I know that you didn't cause this discontentedness, David, 
But just when you mentioned the word God, like it brought so much negativity and hatred in my mind just in hearing the name God. And I can understand that, especially if somebody's experienced this verbal, physical, or sexual abuse from members who claim that they're representatives of God. But God is not going to physically mentally, verbally, or sexually abuse you in any way. This being is all-powerful, all-loving, deep, deep wisdom, has nothing but love, kindness, patience, and respect for all of us, for every single one of us. And you may end up tapping into that and being able to observe that at some point in your practice or not. I'm not sure because it's your practice. But at the very, very least, if you walk away from this talk and decide that, okay, I'm not going to have a relationship with God, as I said, that's fine. But you at least need to have loving kindness, this active goodwill without judgment, because God is a being. And if you still harbored any kind of hate, anger, ill will, or even the slightest bit of frustration, irritation, annoyance, or even a dislike for God, then your mind still has defilement. Those three defilements of craving, anger, and ignorance, or greed, hatred, and delusion, or unknowing of true reality. So you've got to at least get to a point where you eliminate that if you have any of that in the mind. And if you choose to walk in the direction of no relationship with God, you need to at least cultivate this loving kindness in the mind. So if you find yourself having this hatred, anger, ill will, or even the slightest little dislike towards God, you should include God in your loving kindness meditation and cultivate that. Again, don't have to have a relationship, but at least eliminate that defilement in the mind so that your mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and also practicing all the other teachings that I've shared. If you're going to move in the direction of having a relationship or maintaining a relationship with God, of course, you're going to need to develop this loving kindness towards God and also practice those things that I shared about eliminating fears of God and the way that you would pray perhaps needs to change, the way you look at how your actions are creating certain results. All of these different things need to be incorporated into your practice. So if you need some review of this, either reading the book or reviewing this talk or the talk I did last time, six months ago, or you need some private guidance on this whole topic of God, you can reach out to me, you can schedule an appointment, you can private message me or however you would like to do that. But you need to get to a point where you're unattached, where the topic of God can come up and you're just fine talking about it just like it is the weather. Or you just choose not to talk about it, not because you're angry, not because you're fearful, not because you have hatred or dislike, but you're just like, you know, I just don't talk about God. That's fine too. But if you find yourself experiencing discontentedness about this topic, 
then there is still some craving desire attachment there and that needs to be eliminated in order for you to move closer and closer to enlightenment so just reach out to me and ask for help or guidance to uncover what's going on there so that you can eliminate that defilement from the mind and you can continue to walk towards enlightenment either with a relationship with god or without one so with that said i will just wish you all a very wonderful rest of your day and thank you for joining to learn about this topic it's a very different topic than what we've been covering so far in this program you know everything else that we've been talking in this program are things that you know you can definitely practice right here right now and prove that it's the truth or not so the things that i gave you on that last slide that were like six things those things you can go off and practice about right view and the natural law of gamma in terms of adjusting your understanding of being in a relationship with God and prayer and attachment to God and all these things. You can go out and practice those things if you choose. But this is a very different topic and it's one that people aren't oftentimes exposed to in Buddhist communities. And that's why it's really important for me to share this with you. Because if you learned all the rest of the Buddhist teachings, but you still harbored this dislike in the mind about God, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. So it's important that you understand this and you cover it and address anything that's coming up related to this topic. Next Wednesday, this Wednesday coming up, we will be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. And then on Saturday, we'll be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. On Sunday, chapter 20 is animal to human evolution of our consciousness. This is where we're going to talk about how the mind moves from this animal consciousness closer and closer to human consciousness and helping you see more clearly this realm of the animal world and the human world. So we've kind of touched on the cycle of rebirth here and there throughout this program but next week is where we're really going to dive into it more so than any other aspect of what we've been teaching so far so be sure to either read that chapter before or after or both and be sure to focus on learning this chapter this week and ensure that you understand what we talked about today and look at your practice look at your life practice and figure out what things need to be taken out and what things need to be brought in in order for you to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment on this particular topic of God. So thank you for your questions. Max, thank you for moderating. I appreciate all of you guys diligently studying and learning because the more that you learn and practice these teachings, your life is just going to get better and better. You're going to be causing less harm in the world. So the people around you it's going to help them as well, and it's going to help all of humanity. And together, instead of creating hell on earth, we can create heaven on earth. So thank you very much. I'll see you in our next class, either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.